Welcome, beautiful world, to Barbarian Noetics, the podcast dedicated to the human spirit. I'm your host, Conan Tanner. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the BMP, and thank you so much for joining. I'm coming at you from a hazy Saturday morning here in South Phoenix, and I'm hoping to get this pod out this weekend. So with a little luck, that will come to fruition. Uh, we just had a um, one of the main Sabbaths of the Pagan Wheel of the Year, Mabon, the autumnal equinox just passed. Um, and so I hope you all had a beautiful equinox. It's a good time to kind of take stock um, of your resources, of your situation, and sort of prepare yourself psychologically and spiritually and physically for the coming winter. In Phoenix, it's a little different because the coming winter means like the coming perfectness. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, we've, we have paid our dues here. It's been a long, hot summer. And um, so we're emerging out of it, which is a beautiful thing. And uh, so to everyone out there listening in various parts of the world, um, however the winter impacts you, I hope it's positively. If you're in Australia, for example, then the winter is the summer. So, you know, this, this is a pretty tortured metaphor that's kind of falling apart as I speak. Um, anyways, happy Maybon, happy autumnal equinox. And I'm um, coming at you with some of that fresh BMP content. And uh, this is this episode is going to be part two of the series Crafting Sobriety from the Chaos of Alcoholism. Uh, part one was the beginning of my personal story, uh, my journey um, to sobriety through the hellscape of, of alcohol addiction. And part three next week is going to be a continuation of my personal story. But this episode is a little interlude, um, and it's going to be the second part of my conversation with the radiant and insightful Marta Orozco. I really cannot thank Marta enough for coming on and helping me unpack this topic. Her, she has such a unique perspective and a very different perspective from my own, and so it's so valuable and refreshing to just kind of... Um, to riff with her, you know, with someone who has that fresh perspective and is just so naturally insightful anyways. And um, so we covered a lot of ground on this on this conversation. I think we both were pretty happy with it in terms of uh, kind of handling the topics, the, the main topics that we wanted to handle. So um, I'm excited to share this conversation with you guys. Um, there, I don't know how many kind of parts will be in this this series because I know there's a couple other folks that I'm hoping to interview uh, about their journey with um, addiction to alcohol and eventual sobriety. And um, part of the reason for doing this is I want to provide like not just kind of rabble on about it, although you know there is some value to that, but I also really want to explore like practical methods and techniques that were helpful to me and that were helpful to others. So that uh, for anyone out there listening who, who may be um, you know, wants to rid themselves of alcohol or maybe they're having trouble moderating their intake that we can give them some real, like, tangible, practical things, items that they can do to, to help themselves on that journey. Um, and I guess this kind of goes without saying, but um, I, my hope is that these podcasts uh, kind of resonate with 
folks struggling with any kind of addiction. So my personal story is, is or this particular story is, is my uh, struggle through addiction to alcohol, but I'm hoping that some of the motifs and the themes and through lines of these episodes kind of resonate um, with, with any type of addiction, be it like, you know, an addiction to your smartphone, uh, addiction to gambling, addiction to work. Um, so... Yeah, uh, with all that said, let's get right into this episode, and uh, thanks again for joining. Um, Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Barbarian Noetics podcast wherever you listen to pods. That helps me reach more people and expand the pod, expand the audience, and grow the project. Uh, My ultimate goal, as you all know, is to have a mobile studio and travel Central and South America while I do uh, the BMP on the road. So that is my ultimate goal. And um, if you would like to support that goal financially, you can become a patron, the light of my life, www.patreon.com slash noetics. And you can uh, sponsor the show for as little as a dollar a month, and you can cancel at any time. All right, everyone, without further ado, I present part two of Crafting Sobriety from the Chaos of Alcoholism, featuring Marta Orozco. Let's go. Through the city, tryna keep my hair focused. The sirens in the trash. The faces looking hopeless. How to cope with no can push your coat. Winds blowing over yeah. you. Boys pushing your love. Put that pistol to your shoulder, not your neck. In your hair piece, that's considered yes. The jokes are current, currently the breath is in your chest. That's a blessing, just liquor with the money in the check. Material reality, the hungry getting vexed. No job for a youngster, nonetheless. Yeah. Just living is a test. Taking lesson by lesson and never stress. See the sun gonna rise up in the morning. I'm faithful that the trouble ain't transforming. I'm into that moment, meet me on a corner beneath the tree aroma. Yeah, pouring on bottles for those before us. I know we getting closer. See the devil don't control us, homie. Need it so controllers. If you don't need coming, homie, baby. It's electric, baby. Trying to keep afloat In the ocean looking bigger I've been swimming for the boat Trying to get a hold of something That'll lighten up the bubble rap Rhythms in the function make Happiness for nothing But the feelings are consuming And I'm only human And I'm trying to get illumined To that beat that steady booming You can tune into the process Jump into the mosh But they always come in conscious There is no other options I'm living with everything on the incline Mind over matter The data will make my ink shine In this cold mind See it's dark down By the wayside Look into your heart now Are you ready for Heaviness of the petty, yeah. the wilderness of violence, the silence of Serengeti. Yeah. Night lights, looking for brightness, there isn't any unless you looking inside of yourself Self. and breaking the levy. Bring the machete, the sight of ego in the many. Peace is releasing. Remember, Jesus was a ready. Allow me to honor the sense of destiny and karma. I'm Roman Marama. God bless the essence in my mama. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. In the sauna, keep me calm. I say, I salama, lick them. I take them higher levels of sacred knowledge. We rolling up our problems and contemplate them in silence. Uh. Ride the way, tide will rise again. So do down the do day. 
All right, everybody, welcome back to the BMP, and we have part two of our conversation with the great Marta Orozco. How's it going, Marta? Good, good. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Um, I think our listeners should know that, that Marta is like some type of superwoman because during the part one of our conversation, she had walking pneumonia that undiagnosed. <laughs> and uh, I didn't even, like, it wasn't even noticeable at all. So I'm very impressed. Thanks. I am too with my body because <laughs> I have no idea how I am feeling so well, but I do. I feel pretty good. That's good. I'm glad you're feeling better. And that's another funny thing about like when maybe this isn't true at, for you as much for me, but because I have like Russian blood. So my issue with alcohol is that I never like got technically sick from it. Like I never actually threw up from it. I could just drink and drink and drink and drink because wow. my blood is like so well suited to it. And so because of that, like the hangovers I would get would just be so obscene and I adjusted to like existing in this permanent state of hangover that my tolerance for like getting through like sicknesses and stuff is, <laughs> is higher. Yeah, I this. wonder if it is that like because it is something that I mentioned to the physician that I was seeing. I was like, look, I've had like really bad infections in the past and the only indication was like my back hurt. So maybe you should check if I have an infection. And so I do think that, like, yeah. I don't know if it's being accustomed to, like, pain, you know, because just people definitely have, like, different tolerances for pain. Um, and I definitely think that, like, yeah, if you're somebody, like, even people who just have chronic pain who aren't heavy drinkers or who don't put their bodies through that, like, uh, voluntary abuse, um, mm -hmm. I've noticed that. They just, like, have more... Um, like resilience tolerance to pain and I think well, you, that there is something about training yourself like training your mind to tolerate that and seeing that as normal yeah you know how you were saying in the last uh the last chat that like alcohol conditions your body to deal mm -hmm. and adapt to, to like conditions that n normally would potentially be fatal but mm -hmm. they happen like you kind of slowly acclimate the body to this condition so the body's just constantly in a state of like pretty extreme inflammation and that becomes like your new normal and that's i think that's how you can have these infections and stuff but your body's not even showing that many symptoms because you've already adapted to like this extreme cellular inflammation for all from all the years yeah that's so true and actually i i read this book and it's pretty outdated um, it's called Under the Influence, and it was written in, like, the 80s, but it was one of the first books to really tackle alcoholism from, like, a biological, like, scientific, research-based um, way rather than, like, a societal ill-based way mm -hmm. um, because, you know, a lot of the temperance movement came around from, like, battered housewives, which is, like, yeah, absolutely, this is a wonderful thing. I think prohibition is never the right choice when it comes to stuff like this yeah I, yeah I definitely think there's like a connection to yeah just like a tolerance for something that societally we tolerate biologically our bodies adapt to it um, and mm -hmm. in this book it talks about how the first stage of alcoholism early alcoholism is adaptation how your body begins to not only like um, tolerate it but thrive on it and mm. it isn't until, like, the very later stages of alcoholism that you actually start to deteriorate. 
because the first step is your body preparing for you to do that. <laughs> because when you feed your body like that, it assumes you're going to keep feeding it like that. And the same is true of, like, people who suffer from malnutrition. Their bodies adapt to that kind of near-fatal state, um, like, by necessity and by assuming that that is always going to be the case. It's so sinister, like, the way that these compounds have an effect on you, like, psychically as well as physically. And that was the thing about this book that I really took away. Because a lot of it is, like, kind of, like, borderline eugenicist. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Classic um, 80s. Right. <laughs> so, but the nice thing is It, like, is talks that about makes... the Contras in El Salvador. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? There's <laughs> definitely some, like, borderline stuff. So if, you, if, if your listeners, like, take up this book, definitely leave what you need and take what you need. But it was the yeah. first real, like, um, popular study about being like, hey, let's not, like, have a morally based, um, vision about looking at this problem. Let's look at it. Like, what causes some people to become dependent? What causes some people to have higher tolerance? What causes some people's bodies to like, like some people are allergic to alcohol, you know? And yeah, yeah, like, different blood types react differently to alcohol. And so I definitely think that like, while it's easy to want to be like, oh, it's my constitution, you know? Like I come from a family history of a lot of drinking and it's easy to be like oh it's in my blood you know um but it's it's also a double-edged sword it can be like an excuse to be like oh my body is designed for this Um, oh yeah for sure and you take this weird pride in it because it's mm -hmm. like this is my ancestry like i fell into that trap for a while because you know like i'm yeah i'm i'm russian finnish welsh just like the biggest, like, <laughs> just like nexuses of alcoholism <laughs> makes up my ancestry. And so, yeah, you take this weird pride in it. And especially during the formative years of, um, like, when you're, when you're drinking a lot, it's like it's seen as cool to be able to drink a lot or to be willing to drink a lot or even just to be reckless enough to get wasted. At the very beginning of the drinking times, assuming you start in high school or, like, your first couple years of college, that sort of behavior is seen as, like, funny and cool. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember, like, I was thinking about, after we talked last time, you know, I was talking about control. And I definitely think that, for me, like, it's the control and agency aspect of it. It's like, this is um, one thing that I can control (coughs) how much I take. I can control the way that I feel after and it's a form of agency to make that choice. You know, like, I was, I was raised very, like, um, straight and narrow. Like, I didn't, I didn't drink in high school at all, really. And part of that was just, like, it was not allowed. <laughs> and so when mm. you don't have any choice about whether or not you drink or your relationship to alcohol, that it's just, like, verboten. Like, we all grew up in the 90s D.A.R.E. program. We know that absence-only education doesn't work. And so I kind of afraid of that, you know, like being a young, yeah. experienced drinker and then having this, like, biological tolerance to it where I very easily slipped into that, like, binge drinking, mm-hmm. the weird pride from being able to do it. And, yeah, it's a weird thing. And, I, like, it's something that I could say, like, this is my choice. Like, mm-hmm. okay, Mom, like, I grew up under all your rules. I paid my dues. <laughs> and this is something that, like, where I can exercise my agency 
And then it turned out that it was actually a really easy tool for me to, like, loosen up and figure out, like, who I was. Because at the time, I was really young. Like, like what even is my identity besides just being obedient, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, plus there's this whole infrastructure of, like, the party culture that's waiting for you. I know you mentioned ASU is, like, mm-hmm. maybe particularly a party school, but I really think it's true for every, like, college institution and even a lot of like private schools and private high schools and stuff there's this whole infrastructure of people who have been drinking for years and years already and so they they're like oh yeah like follow us like this is the way to Mm -hmm. this is the way of things and and yeah like binge drinking is totally normal and it's actually kind of funny and we laugh about it the next day and and i'm not trying to be like a moralist or a puritan about it like i do think there's something to the phrase the the south park phrase like there's a time for everything and that time is college like i think there's Mm -hmm. you know i'm not like judging people for certainly for like engaging in the party culture because it is fun in a lot of ways but what you discover is not fun (laughs) yeah (laughs) but what you discover is just that it's it's contingent on your body being like that a that young and that able to like handle that sort of abuse and Mm -hmm. so it's just not at all sustainable like as you go throughout time like and, and that's like the cliche of the cool kids in college that are just like miserable alcoholics 10 years later you know yeah, for sure. And I definitely was somebody who was spending more time, like, with older people, like, um, people who are, like, yeah, experienced drinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then having also, you know, it was actually kind of, um, it felt kind of secure to be in that environment where you're surrounded by other people who have already gone through some of the experiences and that are willing, like, luckily I was surrounded by really good people. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> we were all party animals, but we took care of each other. And yeah. so... That was that's just like luck and hopefully like good judgment on my part about the kind of people I'm around. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I do think like being fostered kind of in an environment of like, hey, you can you can be 35 and be like good with drinking every day or drinking crazy amounts on the weekends, <laughs> um, and do like learning to do that. Like I remember all these like tips and tricks from friends when I was very first beginning to drink and how useful they were like you know have some water every now and again make sure you have some food like basic kind of stuff but things that when you're a really young drinker it's really easy not to to do it responsibly oh yeah um, so <laughs> yeah watch out for like, jello shots i don't shot. blame those people you know i don't <laughs> yeah they're still some of the most important people in my life but yeah definitely stepping away from like after a certain amount of time you're your body just cannot take it. And it's it's crazy how between your 20s and 30s, how quickly that changes, especially if you keep it sustained at that level. Yeah. It, it sounds like you and I both had periods of time where we would, like, take a break, you know? And, and like, I wonder, too, like, how, how bad would it have been if we hadn't been taking those breaks all this time? <laughs> um, you mean, like, taking breaks of not drinking for right, a little bit? Like you, yeah, like you mentioned, like, you go months. During yeah, you go five months without drinking, and that was a big thing. And it is; it absolutely is a huge accomplishment because any time you spend not doing that to your body, is your body catching up and healing? Yeah, um, I know. And and you forget; it's like it's part of the adaptation thing. Like you, when you first stop drinking, you notice like, oh my god, I feel so much better, and I have so much energy, and this is amazing. And then that becomes normalized, and then like 
when you first start drinking, the first like two weeks of when you first start drinking, your health from the past five months is like carrying you through. So you continue to feel good. And so then, you know, then you just tell yourself the lie that like, yeah, cool. I finally figured out how to drink. Like, awesome. Right. (laughs) Yeah. That was the thing was like, you create all these like bumpers and training wheels along the way. Um, like for me, the first step was like, okay, I'm, I'm just not going to drink alone ever or (laughs) no more wine. And then no more liquor. And then it was like only beer. Only beer, only beers that are under a certain percentage, you know, and then only one beer at a time or like yeah. one drink at each event at a time. And those like those helped for sure. But mm-hmm. they also gave me the illusion that I could do it casually like other people do, which is just not true. And those are and things also, that you yeah. have to learn like about yourself, you know. For sure. And and the other thing about the whole, like, having the bumper system set up is 19 times out of 20 times, you'll abide by that, and so it won't be so bad. But then that, that one time happens where either you're in a vulnerable state, you're dealing with something emotionally, you're just being careless, uh, you're dealing with, like, romantic drama, whatever it is, but that one time comes and you figure, like, you know what, fuck it, I'm just going to cut loose tonight. And mm-hmm. then it's like, then the wheels come off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. But did you ever play the game uh, Edward Forty Hands? Um, no, <laughs> no, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't know that it is called that, but I know exactly what you're talking about. So, listeners, in case you're not aware, Edward Forty Hands, or perhaps there's other names for this that I'm not aware of, is when you tape, you duct tape. 40s, like full 40s to both hands, and you walk around a party, and you can't unduct tape the 40s until you finish them. <laughs> yeah, it's and funny you- that you mentioned that, because I've never <laughs> done that. I, you know, I'm a lady, and so we didn't, <laughs> we didn't play dumb games like that. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. We definitely played games, like plenty of beer pong and, like, flip cup and all of that. Um, but I remember in my early days before I was old enough to buy my my own alcohol, a friend of a friend, um, I was like, okay, like, this is the amount of money I have, and I want to have a party, so I need, like, at least a case of, like, booze, and my friend came back with a case of 40s, oldie, and <laughs> we kept that, like, case in our closet in this, yeah. like, first, my first apartment with my roommate, who... I don't think she respected me whatsoever after that first year of living there. She was like this, uh, she's an Air Force person. Yeah. Like, she's also like a, you know, first generation American, Mexican, daughter of Mexican American immigrants, like very, like we were very tight laced all through high school and then we became roommates and I just was like off the rails and she kind of watched this whole thing happen, you know? Like, yeah. And I remember like, she was very polite. She never said a thing, but I could definitely tell that she was like, who did I choose as my roommate? Like, why do we have cases of old English? In our... <laughs> and I remember that, of course, they were so nasty that we never finished them. Like, they just, like, went bad. And <laughs> they were really cheap, though. Like, what was a 40 back in, like, 350? Like, it, it was or less. You could get them for yeah. two, 249, I remember. Ooh. The ones, the ones that had like ridiculous names, like Fierce Thunder, <laughs> like shit like that. Oh, it was so bad. Um, and then there was also the the boxed wine that usually also was like tucked away in a closet because it was so disgusting. And the problem with that, though, for me is that 
the, the worst alcohol that's tucked away in the darkest closet, that's what gets brought out, like, when you're the most fucked up. And you yeah. run out of booze and you don't care. And you're like, I remember there was this one vodka called Wolfschmidt's vodka. <laughs> oh, God, it was so nasty. And it would only come out at the very end. That and box wine. If you're at a yeah. bar, it's Jaeger bombs. <laughs> oh, Jaeger. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think I was really lucky that I never really, um, like, I definitely, you know, ran the gamut of mixed drinks, wine, and things, but, like, near, like, 90% of the time what I drank was beer. And it's interesting to me because, like, it's also a regulating tool if you decide to mostly just drink one kind of drink, especially if it's beer. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember, like, justifying this to myself so much. Like, like oh, hey, at least I don't drink liquor, you know? Like, um, <laughs> right. You know, but it's funny because even that is still, like, it's mostly water. You know, if you're drinking, like, Bud Light all night, it definitely is regulating in a in a different way than if you're like doing shots all night, and I oh, recognized yeah. that, and it's part of the way that I kept my shit together, you know, like, um, and so it's funny, like, I it's it's funny to me that you, like you were so wild, like I I listened to part <laughs> one and I didn't know a lot of those stories about like you know being so young, like the in the movie theater and things like that. <laughs> yeah. And like, I never, I never, I don't think I had, I don't think I had that reputation among the people I drink with, which I think was why it was such a surprise to people when I finally was like open about it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so there's like, there are different kinds of drinkers, you know, like yeah. there are people who keep it together, there are people who you would never know. And then there's- Hold on, I gotta let my cat inside, dog. hang on just a second, okay. sorry. My cat's at the door, she's freaking out, hold on. You were just in the middle of saying how there's different types of drinkers, that some people are very, like, obvious and, like, uh, expl explicative in their drunkenness, and then others are not. Yeah, I think, I think part of, again, like, going back to the agency thing, like, I get the impression, like, depending on the way that you are raised, like, in those former years, again, like, it really makes a difference about how you try to, like, um, enforce your own agency once you have it. You know, like, growing up, I, again, like, I had a lot of responsibilities. I came from a really big family, single mom, five kids, and I was the oldest girl. And so, like, part of it was, like, this pressure to be a good role model and to still be available and be responsible for other things, but also being, like, incredibly angry that that, that, that was my life up to that point. Mm -hmm. And being like, well, now I'm going to do me, but I still care a lot about what other people think. So I'm going to do it really, like, on the fly. <laughs> and, yeah, part and, like, 
still half fearful that, like, I would be rejected by, like, my family for becoming such a drunk and then by my new friends for being such a, like, goody two-shoes for feeling like that pressure was more important than my own agency. Mm-hmm. And so I'm grateful for it in a way, you know, that I was able to, like, try something new. Like, I moved away from home as soon as I could, and that was part of the same reason, you know, like... Like, I've paid my dues here. Like, I I did all these things so that I could get out of this little town, you know, with all these other expectations. Um, but the strange thing is, is, like, you still run into the things that you're running away from. Because the truth is that all of that time I was really afraid of becoming, like, my dad, who is, like, as we speak, experiencing kidney failure from a lifetime of drinking. Mm-hmm. So, like, these this specter like this is how you do it wrong you lose your family you lose your kids you get freaking dialysis in your 50s and then this is how you do it right you hide it all you have a great marriage <laughs> you have a great relationship with your people and then you just become yeah. all this pain and then it, right. it turns out it takes you right back to where you were running from and like it strikes me like you had a different upbringing you had more agency as a young person like the fact that you weren't caught amazed me like I was the first time I drank ever like ever had my first taste of alcohol my mom knew the very next morning it was bananas so like it was my friend's quinceanera and I was allowed to stay the night at her place and of course we had Alizé I had one shot of Alizé so hell yeah <laughs> oh fuck I yeah I never had it again <laughs> the quinceanera you gotta do it right yes of course and then the next morning my mom grabbed me and my brother, who was one year older than me, and I don't remember if he was also at the quinceanera, but she rounded us up and she's like, I need to talk to you two. I know that one of you drank last night. Damn. I didn't say which. She's like, but just know, I know everything. So Whoa. I was totally spooked. I never drank after that. That was yeah. my first drink and I didn't drink again until I moved out, pretty much. How and did she find for out? For the longest time, I remember just being like amazed. I was like, my mom is a magical woman. Yeah. Which, like, <laughs> and for so many years, I was like, this is proof. This is proof that your mom always knows what you're up to, which is why you should always act like she's watching you, which gives you a huge complex. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I remember sharing that story with somebody, like somebody older, and he was like, you know your mom totally bluffed you, right? I was like, what? And he's like, it was your first quinceanera? You spent the night at a friend's house? She was just bluffing. She just assumed... And then you proved you're right and were scared for the whole rest of your teenage years. And I was like, oh, my God, you're right. She totally just was, like, you know, bullshitting. And so I yeah. asked her recently. I asked her. I was like, you were just bluffing us, right? And she's like, no, no, no. I knew you drank that night because somebody told somebody's cousin, told somebody's cousin who told her next door neighbor who told her. All within 12 hours. Oh, my God. <laughs> this That's is almost the community that I grew like- up in. <laughs> Yeah, that almost would, it gives the same type of like complex. It's just like it's not Big Brother Mother, it's like Big Brother Tribe who like sees mm-hmm. all and then reports everything back. Yes. Um, the reason I never got caught is my parents used to go to sleep early and they were really, really deep sleepers and I would just sneak out. I mean, I snuck out. I could get out from my bedroom window and like hop down the roof and then jump down. I had like a ladder that I would use to get back up. And so I would... I would sneak out at like 10 after they went to bed and come back at like 5.30. And as long as my dad was snoring, I knew I'd be good. And then I just like, I perfected the art of like crawling up the stairs without making a sound. 
Maybe that's when I first developed my affinity for cats because I had to like channel my inner cat to get up the stairs without creaking. And then it was be so funny because like I would literally, I would like be going down to the city and driving all over the place and meeting random, I mean the stories, I literally, I was thinking about that in, in part one, I barely tipped like the, the very tip of the iceberg in terms of the stories, like the stories, there's so many stories anyway. Yeah, I don't need to get into that right now. That's why there's, that's why it has to be a multi-part thing because I'm like, I can't <laughs> condense all of this into one thing. But um, but yeah, that that's, it, it, you're right. It just all depends on the circumstances of like all the circumstances, you know? I don't know, like some, some, for some people it's impossible for them to sneak out or they're unwilling to sneak out. But for me, it was just like as natural as rain to sneak out. Like that just became my routine, <laughs> but. Barbarian, the, the Noet, you know, you know the one. Come on, man. Vote blue no matter who. Is uh, dedicated. Come on, man. Yeah, so did you, um, did you ever black out? Yeah, all the time, all the time. Um, it's interesting because I remember, um, like, I've, I'm a journaler. I've, I've, like, kept a journal since I was a little kid. And so when I go back and I read entries about those times, it's interesting to me how much I trusted myself and the other people I was around. And part of that, I think, was like when you when you are young and you're still getting to know yourself and you're getting to become the person you want to be, um, you kind of are like, I don't know, maybe trusting more that without hyper control that you'll become more of the person that you are, you know, like. Yeah, I know what you mean. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I guess like. 
when I would black out, I remember when it first started, um, and I'd wake up and it was never that like panicked feeling. It was always just like, oh, that was such a good time last night. And then we'd all do that thing of filling each other in about what happened and like rehashing the night before. And for, for like a long time, it was always just good times and funny. And so I remember with that choice that I made where I was like, I trust myself to black out. So this is. Oh, wow. Damn. I trust that I'm like doing good by me and by others when I am lost in this like, you know, alcohol world. And. I think that that was like how I felt about it for a long time until those those times started being like waking up knowing you did something terrible but you don't know what. Oh and, God, it's the worst. Um, yeah, and oh, having people so believe in about bad things rather than the funny things you did. Right. Uh, that, that's when it becomes like, oh wow, I really cannot trust myself. That is a scary feel. That was the scarier feeling for me because I had always mm. felt very secure and like my own decision-making, like, it's kind of crazy how it clouds your judgment, even if you're otherwise, like, very prescient and, like, deliberate in the way that you move in the world. Um, it's, it's like, so tempting to just free yourself of all of that um, hyper-control and then something fun sometimes comes out of it, but then when the really, like, terrible things start coming out of it, like, you have no choice but to reconsider and to not trust mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah, it's it's not only is it like your own kind of desire to cut loose, but it's the entire force of the unconscious mind that is like chomping at the bits on the yeah. outside of the walls of your consciousness. And it's like literally like hordes of orcs just like drinking blood and going insane. And that's that's what you're always like denying all the time, living like yes. as a polite person in polite society. Yes. And so like the deeper that shit is, then the more gnarly the unconscious wave is when it takes over, you know? And, yeah. and that's why probably, you know, like at the very beginning, it was more light because you just like, you had less experience in life and you maybe had like less of a developed gnarly unconscious, you know? And then, then as that has started to expand and you go through life and experience heartbreak and tragedy and loss, like, you know, it's not. Yeah. And you know, this is something I wanted to talk about, too, because I was thinking about this since yesterday, about how, like, there's so much non-judgment attached to people who are still, like, um, either problem drinkers or not, but who drink. And I was thinking about it in terms of, like, yeah, like, the older you get, the more you see, you cannot pretend that everything's good. <laughs> so, like, I don't know <laughs> right. whatsoever to try to escape that feeling. And especially now in these times when so much is being, like, just revealed to us that people like you and I already knew. We already know how corrupt and how evil and how much we have to lie just to live in this society that there is a lot of anger and rage and, like, injustice. Yeah. um, it, It does, it's really easy to go to a dark place in these times. And I don't, it's funny because, like, I don't blame people. Everybody has a reason to drink, especially in these times. Like, I tell myself that. Like, if there, and part of the reason that I knew I needed to get sober was because I knew harder times were coming. Like, four years ago, I knew this shit was coming. Mm. And that's kind of about the time that I was like, oh, like, you need to be prepared for whatever is coming around the corner. You can't be caught flat-footed. You can't be caught clouded. Like, you have to be ready. And for me, that was like, wow. is that going to mean starting a family? Because 
if anything's going to drive you to more depression and anxiety, it's becoming a parent and a parent in these times. Right. Oh, my God. You're right. Yeah. Like, that was something my counselor told me a lot, too. She was like, like, look, there is a reason that you've decided that this is what you want now. It's because you recognize that things are changing and that, like, we can't be just, like, giving up. Like, I don't think apathy is a choice that I have at this point. And so why would I be consuming something that just reinforces that? Like, just drowning in sorrow, (laughs) drowning in hopelessness. Um, It's really easy to do that. It's really tempting to do that. And Mm -hmm. that's one thing that keeps me making this choice is at any point we could do that. That is always an option to be like, and that's part of the reason I mean like agency is a huge part of it for me. Mm -hmm. Like when I see like older women like who are like, career drunks and I'm like something in me gets kind of excited about that like the (laughs) side of me is like I want to end myself that way someday if everything were to go wrong for me if I were to lose everything that that's how I would want to go and that's a weird thing to know about yourself but it's important to know it because that's where I'm like drawn to you know Mm-hmm. It's a strange, it's a strange form of self-harm that you can easily mask, you know. Wait, so what? What is it that you were saying you were drawn to? Like that? At any point, I could just become a drunk. Oh right! Give up yeah, all yeah. of this like desire to try for something better. <laughs> right. Like if I were to lose everything, you know, like some people do, they lose everything. Yeah. Um, of course, that's an option, and it's something that tempts me all the time, you know. And yeah. luckily, I I recognize because I'm in treatment for depression that that that's not true. That like that I have so much that is like here for me, and that you don't really ever lose everything. Like my counselor would have me do this exercise. Again, because I'm not somebody who has, like, had to sacrifice a lot in my recovery. Like, I'm still married. I still have a good relationship with my family. I still have a job. Like, I still can drive. Like, all these things, you know? Um, it's, like, she would do this thing where, I was, like, I would have these fatalistic thoughts. Like, oh, God, if I can't get sober, then everybody's just going to abandon me. And she's like, let's, let's follow that logic through. She's like, what do you mean by that? And I was like, well, if I do something terrible to my husband, he would divorce me, and then I'd be alone. And then she's like, well, then what would you do? I was like, well, I'd probably move back to my parents. She's like, well, then you'd not be alone. (laughs) And then I was like, well, what if something happens to my family, and then they're no longer an option for me? And she's like, well, you have friends. You know, like, like, if you follow that catastrophic thinking all the way through, yeah, like, there are other options. But that, being a drunk, is still also always an option. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it was that lyric that you quoted in part one. Like, it's not, I wouldn't recommend this way, but it is a way, something like that. Yeah, it is a way. <laughs> yeah. So I've been meaning to, um, trying to remember, I think it was you that sent me an article about a year ago or so about the, the actual, like, spirit of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I, I just looked it up and I found out, I found it again. So I just want to share a couple paragraphs here and then I would like to get your response. Yeah. 
Um, so the first I'm going to read from is called um, The Spiritual Consequences of Alcohol. And I'll put the link in the show description. I randomly found it on the CostaRicaNews.com. I'm sure it's probably other places, but let's begin by taking a look at the etymology of the word alcohol. Etymology means the root of the word, where it is derived from. The word alcohol comes from the Arabic al-kul, which means body-eating spirit, and gives root origins to the English term for ghoul. In Middle Eastern folklore, a ghoul is an evil demon thought to eat human bodies, either as stolen corpses or as children. The words alembic and alcohol, both, both metaphors for aquavite or life water and spirit, often refer to, the, to a distilled liquid that came from magical explorations in Middle Eastern alchemy. In the words of writer and health enthusiast Jason Kristoff, in, alcohol, in alchemy, alcohol is used to extract the soul essence of an entity, hence its use in extracting essences for essential oils and the sterilization of medical instruments. By consuming alcohol into the body, it in effect extracts the very essence of the soul, allowing the body to be more susceptible to neighboring entities, most of which are of low frequencies. Why do you think we call certain alcoholic beverages spirits? That is why people who consume excessive amounts of alcohol often black out, not remembering what happened. This happens when a good soul, we were sent here with them, leaves because the living conditions are too polluted and too traumatic to tolerate. The good soul jettisons the body, staying connected to a tether, and the dark entity takes the body for a joyride around the block, often in a hedonistic and self-serving illogical rampage. Our bodies are cars for spirits. If one leaves, another can take the car for a ride. Essentially, when someone goes dark after drinking alcohol or polluting themselves in many other ways, their body often becomes possessed by another entity. Pretty intense. <laughs> um, are you like a horror fan? Do you like horror films or like scary stories? I actually don't. <laughs> no, that's funny. Yeah. A lot of people do not. Um, and it's interesting to me. Yeah, I, I do remember that article. And it, it was something that even back then really struck me. And I think about it a lot because... Um, originally, I had been thinking about talking to folks like you and others who I'm close to who've had these, like, fucked up experiences while drinking. And not necessarily even when you are the one drinking, but when right. you're around other people who are yeah. also super fucked up. And when you are a super, you know, when you're a person who gets drunk all the time, you do. You are around other people who are in that state. Oh, oh yeah. For sure. You know, and... It is kind of like, uh, I think it's really interesting that they, they, they use the word consume because I was thinking about this, like the reason that we take, we like covet and we eat and we drink and we consume things is out of like a hunger. And I definitely think that in today's society, we hunger for spiritual connection with people. Like, we have become so secular and so, like, anti-spirit <laughs> that some of us, the only way we access that is through drinking. And it absolutely makes sense. Like, I'm not somebody who likes to personify, like, evil, which is why I'm somebody who can, like, enjoy horror movies. <laughs> um, uh <-huh. laughs> because I recognize that evil exists in all of us. That 
soul-sucking, consuming, taking without regard for anyone else, like, that's exactly what you're doing when you're drinking, you know, like, yeah, you're just thirsty, like, I think of that Kendrick Lamar song, like, you're thirsty for connection, you're thirsty for, like, um, a higher, like, realm, you know, because, like, I'm an atheist, I, I haven't, like, I was raised Catholic, I've had enough of ghouls and spirits, like, um, <laughs> yeah, I definitely think like there has to be more personable, personal, like connect, like uh, accountability to the way that we connect with other people, and understanding that we are all just one. And when we consume, we're consuming ourselves. And it's something that I think about being an, a woman who hasn't had children yet, because mm-hmm. I think about how. People say that about parenthood, especially motherhood. Like, it is all-consuming. And you, like... you. Um, I read this book called Beast, and there's a line in it, and it has stuck with me. It's this really, like, kind of ethereal story about a man who, like, goes out to the woods in isolation. And he's being pursued by this beast. Mm-hmm. But he can never find it. He can only, like, smell it, and he knows it's hunting him, and he's panicked. Um, but he wonders at one point, he says, what are you if you've never been consumed? Are you even part of this world if you don't partake in the, like, eat and being eaten? And I think part of a way that we do that, where we're like, I can't literally consume my friend's love, but I can get myself to a state where we're just, like, consuming something together and put them in this state where we're like electric and like just linked you know because Mm -hmm. people who are drunk they're living in the same world as people who are sober right like they've just accessed another level of themselves Coyotes. We're going to get right back into this episode of the Barbarian Noetics podcast with Marta Orozco. But first, a quick word from today's sponsor. 
The world is changing fast. Robots that can skip, twirl, jump, and eat organic matter on the battlefield. As Joe Biden says, there's at least three genders. At least three. Cereal without any grain. Octogenarian Supreme Court justices appropriating black culture to create lib porn then not retiring at age 82 after multiple cancer diagnoses, despite the fate of legal abortion hinging on their survival. Now, instead of Frankie Blue Eyes, we have Little Nas X. And in place of the Ed Sullivan Show, we have the Bro Jogan Experience. There are those of us who remember a simpler time in America, when cereal was made of, you know, cereal and milk was made of milk. Before every Halloween having to be subjected to a cavalcade of pumpkin spice flavored things. Back when sexism was still cool and marijuana was still bad. We are the simpler time. We are the boomers. And now, introducing the next wave of boomer entertainment, Boomer VR. Have your tech-savvy niece help fit you to your full-body Boomer VR suit. Then retreat blissfully into a synthetic approximation of existence in good old 1960. Back when straws were still made of good old-fashioned plastic. Before we were constantly confronted with images of sea turtles choking on them. When you could go to school for free in California before California became a coastal bonfire each September. Don't share the world any longer with spoiled millennials whining about collapsing fisheries. Listen no more to ungrateful Zoomers point the finger at you for rewarding Ronald Reagan's genocidal death squads in Central America. The architects of Iran-Contra are still lurking around the White House planning coups in Venezuela Okay, Zoomer. Have fun dodging eco-fascists in your postmodern socialist hellscape. I'll be reclining in my Boomer VR gamer chair, sipping an Airsats strawberry milkshake with real dairy, thank you very much, at a faux drive-in theater, necking with an artificial young white Republican, popping pretend laudanum, and telling tone-deaf jokes about Orientalism. Boomer VR, the world is getting too complex. Live the true Boomer lifestyle and retreat into your own non-existent fantasy with Boomer VR. We already fixed the world in the 60s. Now, we are checking out both literally and figuratively, rather than face the nightmarish reality we've ushered in by short-sightedly stacking white privilege on top of post-war prosperity but not before we leave you bratty youngsters with an election between two sundowning narcissists with open contempt for the issues that young people hold dear. Green New Deal? We already did the New Deal, kids. And newsflash, it was only for white guys. Get over it. I'll be in my bubble wrap chamber, lovingly wrapped in my full body VR suit, Reliving the good times of beating hippies with batons at the 1968 DNC in Chicago and sending poor people's kids to fight and die for my right to listen to Elvis on a pontoon boat 
while grilling hot dogs made of real miscellaneous meat parts. Thank you very much. Boomer VR. You distrust technology, and rightfully so. But you can rely on Boomer VR to restore phantasmal sanity to the rapidly degenerating world you've built. Let the prisoners and whiny hipsters put out the generationally devastating wildfires. I've got a date with a CGI plastic chair, plush carpet, and reruns of I Dream of Genie. Boomer VR. Virtual reality for the genuine America. likely way that you get killed is if so like the most people who kill other people <laughs> are strange men who get into fights people who don't know each other who get mm. into fights who does that drunk people do that <laughs> yeah 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 um, for sure that's yeah so like all this danger that we think exists in like stranger danger and like those things um like, they're secondary to the state you have to be in in order to do that to somebody else. And alcohol makes, allows for any kind of person to get to that point. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I don't ever want to consume somebody. I don't ever want to be driving my car and wreck and kill somebody. You know, that's yeah. like a very, like, literal way of thinking of it. But mm-hmm. what you're doing is, like, you're consuming yourself. You're, like, actively giving away parts of yourself yeah i mean the article says that the soul the good soul leaves the body and just stays connected by a tether 
because it can't tolerate the like mm-hmm. traumatic polluted con- polluted conditions of being in that consciousness that's so warped and distorted by the alcohol. Mm-hmm. And um us. Probably not because it's a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> they're, they're twin. They have like an evil twin, and they're called their tethered. Oh, cool. And it's the same exact thing where basically there's like this underground world where there's a twin for every one of us, and they are basically just oppressed and subjugated to the point where they are like almost no longer human, and they're tethered to their good twin. And to me, it's just a metaphor for like. The conditions you put yourself in make you evil or not, you know? That's actually, like, a really powerful symbol of the unconscious and how that operates, too. Like, the shadow, how we're we're tethered to our shadow side. And that's how if... And that's that's how, like, you know how we were speaking about when you emerge... If you're lucky enough to emerge from alcoholism, you do have this gift. You're gifted with a sense of extreme empathy for others. And Mm -hmm. I think that's because you have... You have like faced, you have not only faced your shadow, but you've forced your loved ones to look at your shadow, which is an extremely humili- humiliating and yeah. degrading experience. And it's like, it's hard to stand over others in judgment after that, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But, um, and but yeah, I mean, oh, sorry, you first. <clears throat> no, I was going to say it's, I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's something that I think like the polarity of like, my good side doesn't drink and my bad side does when really like your shadow comes in all, all times of your life. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I, and dealing with that shadow self in sobriety, that is a trip. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Shadow self and all of your ugliness. That is what makes being sober so hard and painful. Like, yeah. Is having to sit with yourself, be uncomfortable with yourself and with other people. Like, that's one thing that for sure, like, I'm not, I don't know about you, but I used to think I was a very chill person. It turns mm-hmm. out I'm not that chill. <laughs> I was just like numbing myself a lot. Yeah. Um, and so that's a new thing to embrace being like, oh, I kind of might be a bitch, but that's okay. Because <laughs> before I was pretending that there was no bitch in me whatsoever. And I was yeah. hiding all of this shadow behavior in times when I could say oh I have no accountability for that I don't remember that I don't remember being a bitch to you about important things you know hurting people or disregarding people you know yeah and that's why it's so incredibly horrific basically to to when you are in the grips of alcoholism and you're in the denial phase of it because your loved ones and even just people in the community and just random people you encounter they have to deal with the your shadow and and but then you are not you aren't even dealing with it and it's like that's just unjust like that's an unjust situation it's bad karma like you're gonna have to eventually pay for that karma at some point i think yeah you know what's interesting is i had this really vivid dream once right after i really was like really trying to hard get so it's still fucking up all the time and i had this really vivid dream where everyone else in my life was really drunk like I remember, I got her, I got her like round people up for dinner. Let's go, and like everybody in my life, like real people, you know, when like real people are in your dreams in your life. Mm-hmm. Everybody was like fucked up, and yeah. in public, and like I remember it was one of those dreams where you like you have to accomplish a goal. And in in this dream, the thing that I was really needing to do was get a cab. I needed to get a cab so that I could round up everybody who was super drunk and get them home 
but I needed to go get cash. And, you know, like, in your dreams, you have all these little, like, tasks that you need mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. And I just kept encountering my loved ones, people who, like, I would never, ever abandon. And just being absolute drunks or, like, just out of control hysterical. And I remember waking up and being like, oh, that feeling that I had, like, that frustration, that pain, that sadness of having to, like, deal with my loved ones when they couldn't deal with themselves. That is what I've been putting everybody else through. And not only that, they love me the same, that they would also be just as frustrated and whatever and never abandon me. Because in those dreams, that was the feeling I had. But I was like, man, y'all are fucking up, but I'm not going to leave you behind. (laughs) Yeah. And so knowing that other people in my life feel that way about me, like, they've seen me fucked up, so fucked up and that they took care of me, that they didn't abandon me and that they never will. Yeah. That was the epiphany because so much of it was like this fear of failure. Like, if I don't do this thing, if I don't get sober, I'm gonna fuck up my whole life. And it's like, no, not really. Like, your people will stand by you. And the, the troubling thing is that there is a point where you have to cut people off. Like, yeah. I was raised by one of those people. Like, my dad had absolutely to be removed from the family. Like, we had mm-hmm. to be like, you're not allowed here anymore. And I think a huge part of my fear this whole time is that that would be me. Mm-hmm. And that I could get to a point where that would be the right thing for everybody to do. Yeah. And I remember, I remember like vocalizing that to my husband, to my friends and family, and them just being like, absolutely not. We <laughs> would never abandon you. And that's, that's important to know because it's easy to want to succumb to it, you know? But you know that you're not just doing it to yourself, you're doing it to everybody in your life who cares mm-hmm. about you, who's invested in you, who wants to see you, like, yeah. and happy. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, this is a little bit of a tangent, but in the recent uh, conversation, I think I might have featured it on the podcast between Dr. Cornell West and Senator Nina Turner, they were talking about racism in America and, like, especially the roots of it, and Cornell West was talking about how, like, what he was talking about what gives rise to the blues and like the african-american blues tradition and he's saying that like there's no way to describe the torture of being in a society where you are kind of in in you're trapped by oppressors and then the oppressors are not even acknowledging their own oppression and in fact are proclaiming their own innocence Right. So like, and, and that, I just found that so profound in terms of like how collective consciousness reflects individual consciousness because it's like, that's the nature of denial truly is when you are committing injustices, you're oppressing others, but you are proclaiming innocence to the world. And, and it's like that, that is, yeah, it's just, it's like I said, it's, I don't really know what to say about it other than it's just an, it's unjust and it's not, it's just like fundamentally not right, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny uh-huh. that you mentioned that too, because I think that really was more of what that movie Us was about. Um, because it was written by Jordan Peele, who did Get Out. So all of his work has this very like direct racial context. And that's essentially what he was saying about these folks who were like living in this underground world it's like that's what we've forced black people in this country to live like for centuries yeah you know and and then we expect everybody to be good 
and like yeah you know yeah it's uh it's interesting that like yeah the things that we deny including like our own racism our own addictions like our own consumption where we just consume and consume Mm -hmm. like it is actively we're actively consuming other people you know like yeah yeah, and, that, and that's that, kind that, of what I mean about like you could give into that. You could just become a part of that wave, you know. Absolutely, it's it's there, just like waiting to swallow you up at all times. <laughs> but um, you know, like that, what you're talking about with that that sort of oppression and the projection. I mean, unfortunately, we are experiencing that in the present moment, especially towards immigrants and especially towards Mexican and Latin American immigrants. Where it's like, and that's what makes me so insanely angry about that anyone would even dare to question the Dreamers program other than to say we have to expand it is this idea that like we hold others, we oppress others and then we hold them to a higher standard than ourselves. And so that's still going on to this day and it's disgusting and it's just like, and that's part of that that deep shadow that that is there for us always, like the, the collective unconscious is a dark place, like I don't know. Did you listen to my podcast with T Fairy? Uh, she's like so. the she's kind of this like psychedelic legend in the Burning Man community, and she was talking about um, this one trip she had where she just like was forced to bear witness to the collective unconscious and like all of all of the darkness of humanity, and just like how it was such a formative and terrifying experience because she like couldn't look away from just like. The, all the deepest darkest like underbellies and horrors of, of like the world and it's like that but that's that is like the brutal path of achieving wholeness you know like if you don't if you don't bear witness to that stuff within yourself so i brought up this quote by um khalil gibran it's from the prophet he says but i say that even as the holy and the righteous cannot rise beyond the highest which is in each of you so the wicked and the weak cannot fall lower than the lowest, which is in you also. And so it's like that 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 wrap that wraps up the concept so perfectly. Yeah. And um, it's one of those like weird silver lining gifts that that emerging from alcoholism gives is like you've you've been to like some extremely dark places <laughs> yeah. and. You know, thus you have like that, your awareness, it's like, I kind of feel it and I'm not glorifying or saying that anyone should seek out dark places because the dark places happen in life. Like they just happen no matter how you live, you could live, (laughs) no, you could live like a morally perfect, immaculate life and you'll still, life will give you these dark places. Like it's just a part of life, but it's kind of like, I see it as a, as like circle, circles upon circles. And each time you reach like a new low, (laughs) a new darkness, it expands your the circle of your universe that much to contain that that equal in light and joy and and pleasure and power too you know yeah but um you know it was something i thought about um you know we mentioned the first thing we talked about when we talked last time was about being transparent with people um and like one thing i i wanted to mention was that um like i've been very resistant to having treatment you know like I, I haven't been to like a rehab center. I haven't been to like AA. Like I've really rejected a lot of these like group programs or like formal programs. Mm-hmm. And 
part of it is that, yeah, like the accountability that I seek isn't necessarily in my actions. It's, it's in the way that my thoughts have been guiding my actions. You know, like mm-hmm. I could quit drinking and not explore any of these like dark places and still achieve the goal of not drinking, um, but maybe never really achieve any kind of wholeness. You know, like mm-hmm. people call it dry drunk or, you know, whatever. Um, like people who don't drink but haven't addressed, like, I don't know, whatever issue they're trying to numb themselves from or whatever it might be. And like just choosing other ways to harm people <laughs> without knowing. <laughs> um, and I think being, yeah, and I think being like a, like a missionizing sober person is can be very damaging. And so, oh god, so tired yeah, like, people. I, I want like I want people to know that this is what I'm doing for my sake and for their sake, but also just for like the collective consciousness sake that that we can be open about like um, suffering, really, because that's really what we're all doing when we have addiction. You know, we're just like trying to ease suffering. Yeah. Um, and so there is some like discomfort and suffering that happens by just like taking away that numbing agent. But it's not the same thing as like um, like progressing beyond it. You know, it's like neutral. And part of the reason that I wanted to quit drinking was again not because it had had all these negative consequences in my life, but because I want something more. Like I want a transformative experience and. For a while, I really thought like, oh yeah, like, you know, being a mother, that's what I want. That's going to be a transformative experience. And then I was like, well, that's not transformative for me. That's transformative for whatever creature I bring into this world. For me, Mm -hmm. the transformation has to happen before that. Mm -hmm. And it's strange doing it alone. You know, like, (laughs) I I was like listening to Amy Winehouse recently and she's like, you know, can't make me go to rehab like that's how I felt for you <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I don't know if you've had like treatment or like gone to through inpatient or outpatient programs um how do you feel about like programs like Alcoholics Anonymous and things like that yeah thanks for asking I think it's a good question to address and then I also just really quick wanted to to kind of put it out there that one of the reasons why I like to have conversations about this stuff and then put it up on my feed is because it's like a resource then it's not you can't like sit someone down and lecture them like this that's just like no one appreciates that no one likes it and it's annoying i think for people who like to have a few drinks but don't have a problem to then be like get around some heavy ass alcoholic who just talks about (laughs) alcohol and like the dark influence of evil (laughs) so but just say it's like I know that there's many others that are going through what what we are still going through and what we have gone through. And so this is like just one more resource in the universe available for people. Yeah. But um, in terms of AA, I did attend a few meetings at, um, this was my second time being sober, where I was sober for almost like a year and a half actually. And I had just emerged out of one of my rock bottoms, my second rock bottom. And so I I attended some AA meetings. And I think that um, I want to be like very sort of careful about how I talk about this because I think that it's a really valuable resource and I'm glad that it exists. And I know it helps tons of people 
And I think that as like just a starting point for someone who just needs something immediately, it's nice to have all of these AA meetings everywhere just for someone. And that's, that's kind of what it was for me. It was just like, I need something. I don't know where else to turn. I'm just going to do this, go to these meetings. With that said, they, they give you like the book, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous when you go mm -hmm. to your first meeting. And, um, I ended up having, I ended up not kind of moving away from AA. And when I went sober the final time, I didn't attend AA. And it was because my experience with it actually made me depressed because the environment was depressing. <laughs> because yeah. there's all these hardcore alcoholics and a lot of people that attend AA meetings are like, they're always relapsing. So they always have, and I'm, that's, I'm not saying that from a moralistic standpoint, I'm just saying that there's always like fresh drama and fresh pain. And yeah. kind of one of the purposes of those meetings is to be able to like express your pain. But for me, I'm very sensitive and it was just yeah. ended up, I would emerge from those meetings feeling drained and depressed yeah. instead of, you know. And then the big book is like written in like 1422, like it's so old and it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just about it's I like thought some, my 80s books were dated yeah <laughs> and it's just I feel like it's very kind of like mansplaining and it's just like story after story of white men who have one drink and then fuck up their lives and it's like well yeah. I know this is my story so I, I don't have to reread this over and over like yeah I know the story very intimately <laughs> so like I get it I, if you have one drink mm -hmm. and you're an alcoholic you fuck up your life that's that's what happens. <laughs> I'm really actually glad you mentioned that because, um, you know, when I first started thinking about sharing, you know, this journey that I'm on, a really important thing to me was that um, I think I represent a different kind of, like, demographic of people who go through this and who come out of it. Um, like, you're a white guy, you know, like, like you're saying, your story is centered a lot. Mm -hmm. And it's familiar to people, whereas I think, like, you know, there are a lot of, we, we live in Arizona, so there's, like, you know, half of the people in this state are like me. And, mm -hmm. like, I think it's important that Mexican-American women, young women, um, like, be honest about it. Because it is a huge part of Mexican-American culture. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, the first, um, like, impressions that we get about this problem is through our parents and let's be honest most likely our fathers and so mm -hmm. like dealing with intergenerational trauma in that context is important because like there there are things that we all share and there are things that we all have like differences about and like being a woman that's something that like that's a new thing about like studies of alcoholism is that they finally actually include women right. and, <laughs> and the ways that like women are uniquely affected especially when it comes to things like being a mother because of course like drinking whether you're a dad or a mom is you know going to have an effect on a kid but like for me it was like I want my body to be like prepared like if that were to happen, I don't want to be like getting sober while I'm pregnant. Like that's not that's not ideal, you know. Right. Um, yeah. And then also considering like yeah the cultural context of like I have a big family and um, part of like multi generations is like getting together and having parties and drinking and like 
Um, like even last night was my brother's birthday and I was in a situation that I was like very familiar with and was very like, oh God, I just want to have one beer with my brothers like while we're all hanging out, like having birthday dinner. Like that is a huge part of my culture that I have to like absent myself from. Um, and then having other tools in that context, you know, like we keep seltzer water stocked in the fridge because a seltzer water can is like very similar to a can of beer. And like, um, I've tried these really great, like hot tea, like carbonated hot tea drinks. I just very recently started like having non-alcoholic beer around because I am now again in a context where like we hang out, we drink, you know, and so I want to have, I want to be able to participate in that, but on my terms. And so mm-hmm. like, yeah, having like a nice carbonated beverage or something else to drink or to smoke just to have like a head change, but still be like to access, you know, that kind of like spirit level, that connection with your other people mm-hmm. without compromising like my health, you know, <laughs> my mental yeah. health, my physical health, my spiritual health. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I can't uh, overstate the importance of having like nice, fancy, carbonated, non-alcoholic beverages around, yes, especially all the when. Cold beverages. Yeah, yes, because like what I've what one thing I've discovered is that for myself and I think for many other alcoholics, I have uh, um, I'm or what is it when you're like oral fixation? Oral fixation. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I have an oral fixation, so I like. When I drink, I like drinking things, and I'm, I drink things extremely quickly. So like when I, Me like I cracked too. open a kombucha, like I have this fancy ass four dollar kombucha that I cracked open at the beginning of our conversation, and I chugged it within the first like two minutes of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's funny because yeah. in Spanish we call we call big drinkers dragona, which means like big drinker. You know, and I feel that way. And I remember my mom used to call me that as a baby, like as a joke, because when I nursed, I was like a very voracious eater. (laughs) And I still do, which is also part of the reason that I have pneumonia is because I inhaled food down my freaking throat and I went down the wrong tube. So, yeah, I definitely think that like that consuming, that like thirst, that drinking, like wanting to like have something in your mouth. Like, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's part of it. It's a comfort, and I saw it with yeah. uh, my my uncle who's passed away, um, and I think possibly he, he was he was an alcoholic for many years. Um, I don't know if that contributed to his he passed away quite early in life, but I think what really caused it is that when he became sober, he had recognized the same thing about himself that he needed to always be drinking something. So I remember he always would have coolers stashed with diet cokes. And he would just endlessly chug Diet Cokes all day. And one day his heart just stopped and he was only like 55. And um, and it, so it's like that. that's also important to, to point out to people that like that shit is poison. So don't don't replace one poison with another poison. <laughs> you yeah, know, like, sure. yeah, that, I, I'm convinced. And I've heard from other people, my brother-in-law included, that they, people who drink a lot of diet soda end up with like serious health issues that are directly related to the diet soda consumption. Anyway, that was a little bit of a tangent, but um, but yeah, I think it's very common for alcoholics to have oral fixation. So that's, and then also for me, it's like, that's why marijuana is so helpful, you know, because it also allows for, and I realize it's not perfect and that um, you're inhaling smoke, which isn't the best, but um, you don't have to like inhale a lot of smoke for me, especially if I'm like hanging out with my family. I don't want to be like stoned, but just a little tiny bit of like 
to achieve that altered state helps to get you on the same plane with your family or friends or whoever who are drinking. Right. So, and um, yeah. Oh, and then I, I wanted to bring this up, but I don't, do you have like 15 more minutes to talk? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Um, I just feel like this is too important not to bring up. I don't necessarily want to end on this topic because it's a little bit dark. So we'll, we'll, we'll address this and then we'll end on something more hopeful. But um, when we were talking about like the Arabic root of alcohol and like the dark influence of alcohol and the satanic possession and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, demonic possession, I can't help but think about also the not just the damage that alcohol has caused in like our contemporary world and among individual people, but through the history of colonization and European introduction of alcohol into indigenous societies around the whole world has been like devastating. And to this day, there's like many colonized peoples whose bodies just don't, they, they are not, they hadn't been drinking for as long as Europeans. So their genetic structure is not predisposed to process it even as well as Europeans. And, you know, it's like, Europeans love to claim that we handle alcohol so well, but like we're all alcoholics. So, you know what I mean? Like just because you can drink right. more of something without puking is not necessarily like a good thing. But anyways, I just, I, I just feel like I wanted to get your take on that uh, in Absolutely. terms of like yeah, the historical and global context. For sure. I'm really glad you brought that up because I do think it's important to recognize that like, out, like human beings, especially in certain parts of the world, like the Middle East and Europe have been making and drinking alcohol for such a long time of their like civilization and their history that yeah it's like it's a cultural relic that exists for a larger part of certain people's histories than others and it is something that um is true like when you think about like for example drinking problems here in Arizona like um the like Navajo reservation is especially ravaged by addiction and Mm -hmm. you know part of that is yeah that these are people who, like, didn't get introduced into this substance until they were colonized, traumatized, and yeah. rounded up. And then, like, yeah, yeah, I definitely think it's important to talk about. And it's kind of what I was mentioning in that book, um, where they get, like, borderline eugenicist, because I definitely think that we have to, like, develop and really evolve the way that we think about race. You know, being somebody of Mexican origin who, like, I can't trace my indigenous lineage because, you know, nation states. (laughs) But um, (laughs) it is something that I think about because, like, you know, my family members, especially, like, my grandparents were just, like, um, a different culture of people than the way that they moved into this country. And they're surrounded by, like, um, you know... European people, white people, (laughs) and um, intermarrying and having kids with, and, like, yeah, I do think it is especially dark considering, like, this country's history with it, Yeah, Um, but it's it's also universal. Like, um, you know, people talk about how, like, for example, um, Asian people, like, they have, like, they tend to have more of, like, allergic reactions, so they have lower tolerances for drinking. And it's something that actually makes sense in a cultural context when you're talking about why certain populations drink more. Um, like, if you don't have the physical ability to do it, then it's not going to be a problem for you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. If, if it's like, 
if it's a religious reason, you know, like if you're someone who doesn't drink alcohol because you're Muslim and you just like were never introduced to it, never developed a tolerance to it, never developed a taste, um, then that's not as much of an issue for you, you know. But if you're like, yeah, you know, someone like you or me whose like family culture has really included this for traumatic reasons or for not, then, mm-hmm. um, then yeah, it complicates your relationship with it. And yeah, like I remember this experience. Um, when I was a brand new drinker and I was at ASU and I got invited to this party with a bunch of art students downtown Phoenix and it was one of the first times Ooh, I was downtown. Fancy. <laughs> yeah, it was so fun and I felt like being somebody who's like a Mexican American immigrant who got to school on a scholarship, whose parents never like went past high school and all that, like I definitely felt like an imposter a lot of the time. I mm. cannot hide like my identity. Like I look like a Mexican-American woman, and I talk like one, and um, I come from that background, you know, like I'm not far removed from my traditional culture. And I remember going to that party and over drinking, like having a great old time with these cool folks. And at one point I looked up at the big like skyscrapers downtown Phoenix, and I was just enraged. I felt so oppressed. And it was like I saw clearly exactly who I was in the context that I was in, and it enraged me. Yeah. I was in there, and I was like, like, who the fuck do I think I am? Like, I'm a poor Mexican kid who is fucking drunk in the middle of a party downtown. And something about those buildings just, like, clarified that to me. And I remember being mad at myself after because I just totally reinforced it. You know, I was, like, out of control drunk. Like... Native-looking people already have a stigma in this state, you know, for being problem drinkers. We know that. I'm not going to ignore that. I'm not going to pretend like people don't have jokes about going off the reservation, you know? It's yeah. insulting, but there's context to it. And yeah. it's, it's re-traumatizing even thinking about it, about how embarrassing it was, about but how crystal clear it was to me, exactly what I was mad about being in the situation that I had put myself in and yeah having to be like carted off this crying Mexican girl who Mm. obviously had never been drinking like hadn't been drinking before and was like feeling vulnerable in this state where I felt like I didn't belong you know with all these like rich white kids who were going to school for like art you know yeah and it's something that I think about because like you know, I'm, I'm married to a white guy. Um, he's also a child of immigrants, but you can't tell because he's white. And I remember <laughs> thinking about that because he and his brother was, were the ones who brought me to this party. And, like, these guys are my family now. Like, we rolled deep. But at the time, they were just some young white guys that I knew and who gave me access to this other world that I so desperately wanted to be a part of and wanted to casually be a part of. Like, mm. I want to be able to be a party-drinking ASU girl. Turns out I have a lot of fucking intergenerational trauma and baggage. <laughs> and when you bring <laughs> that kind of person into that kind of environment, you make everybody really uncomfortable and kind of reinforce some really ugly stereotypes. Mm. You know? And I have to think about that when I think about how I present to people, you know, and what that carries in a racial context, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I wonder, like, do do Irish men, like, when they get blackout drunk, are they thinking to themselves, like, I'm 
I'm uh, reinforcing this cultural stereotype about Irish men. I just don't know if they do in the same way. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting about um, how the buildings like really drove drove that home in in your like subconscious. Um, that's yeah. really interesting to me because obviously what the skyscrapers represent is very much white male patriarchy and financial. Yeah, and they were all lit up. That was the thing that pissed me off. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah, like I'm, they were looking at me, you know, like. And we were, we were like outdoor and it's like outdoors in a backyard and I remember like looking up and swinging my head up and being like, fuck you. Like I was literally yelling <laughs> at the building That's and awesome. crying. And, and the thing that, the thing that, the reason it has stuck with me is because I fucking meant it. I still yeah. do. And that's kind yeah. of what I mean about like, we all have reasons to be that like ready to access that primal part of us that is just like, let's tear this fucking thing apart. Yeah. And it's righteous anger. Mm -hmm. But, like, it's such a destructive way to access that part of yourself. But doing that sober is also really hard, you know? Like, yeah, it's hard to get to that place when you're, like, just sober and uncomfortable and, like, generally sad, no energy, you know? Like, yeah, well, it opens the door to that deep collective unconscious shit that we've been talking about mm -hmm. is when you start peeling back the onions of the systematic oppression and the institutional oppression that has literally birthed our, we're living in the world that, that the skyscrapers have made. And really? so when you start to really look at that, it's, it gets very dark very fast and it, it is hard. To, and that's one of the reasons why psychedelics are so powerful because for me, they always force me to look at that shit and I'm, I am in, a, in an altered state and I just kind of have to. <laughs> and it's scary, but I love it, right? Like I, I, I go back to that tool, but I have a lot of respect for it because it's terrifying. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I feel like we could just like talk about this forever, Martha. Is there anything that you... <laughs> is there anything Want that you... <laughs> yeah, yeah, or anything that you wanted to bring up that we didn't have a chance to touch on? You know, I feel like we touched on a lot of stuff that, you know, I thought about since we talked last time. Um, yeah, I don't think there was anything really, I think we hit everything, but yeah, I definitely wanted to end on a, like, a more hopeful note than like, yeah, the world is burning. Let's just all <laughs> Yeah, well, we, we could end by just like sharing a little bit about our own journeys to sobriety and actually like practically how we achieved it. And maybe it'll help spur yeah, the minds of sure. others. Yeah. So like, yeah, what we started to talk about this yesterday and I had to hop off, but yeah, like we were talking about like what, what causes this? Is it like trauma and like addiction, you know? And I don't know if you've heard of, um, Gabor Mate. Um, he's a writer. He's a Canadian like addiction specialist and hmm. he writes all about how like addiction is, um, like trauma and how, yeah, basically just like if you can address that then like it's easier to resolve the things after and so like um the way that i really finally just decided <laughs> that like this had to change was yeah like we had left phoenix and so we were living in seattle where we were totally isolated and having like i had to force myself to get to know new people you know and in that process of like, oh yeah, who is this person that I'm trying to introduce these new people to? Mm. Um, like that, like, 
identity outside of being propped up by all the people who already love you. Mm. You know, like, uh, in that process, I felt very, like, I had a lot of extra time because I wasn't spending so much time with, like, family and friends and all my peeps, where I was just so alone and not defined by my relationships with other people. Yeah. And when I was in that state, I recognized that there was just a lot of numbing. There was a lot of just, like, escaping, escapism. And part of that was because all of these, like, traumatic childhood memories were starting to come up after having, like... When you when you separate from the people who help identify you and you're out on your own and you have to really reckon with, like, who am I outside of the people who love me? Um, you have to, like, really see some things. And what I saw was that, like, yeah, that I was hiding a lot. And it wasn't until, like, one of my cousins called me out. I hadn't seen him for, like, a year because we had moved and then we went to his wedding. And he just straight up was like, are you okay? Like, you look mm -hmm. really thin. How have you been? You know? Mm -hmm. And I, like, I felt so caught. And I knew exactly what the answer was. And that's when I was like, oh, right. Like, uh left to your own devices if no other people are loving you you're actually consumed with self-hatred and masochistic tendencies mm -hmm. and knowing that about yourself is incredibly eye-opening and like so that's when i started to go like to a counselor and be like why do i hate myself so much <laughs> 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 right. um and then yeah working through that and basically like i think if if people like and I didn't even know that. Like, I really didn't know that I hated myself so much because I had allowed all the love from other people that I always got to just stand in for any kind of love or respect for myself. And that's a strange thing to learn it about yourself at a yeah. late age when you feel like you've already lived a very, like, deliberate, like, purposeful, healthy life, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to find out that, oh, right, my vegetarianism was just, like, hyper-control and, like... My spiritualism was kind of like a stand-in for having to address all this trauma. Um, so it's hard. I don't want people to feel like it's easy. It's really hard. It's mm -hmm. painful. It's uncomfortable. Um, it's like a two steps forward, one step back. Um, I think people, if they really are ready to make this decision, have to recognize that. Like, Hmm. That it's not fun. Like, <laughs> is not fun. It's painful. It's traumatizing. And it's also just like incredibly boring at times. Especially when you've done all the work of like, okay, like I've gone through these couple of years of like intensive counseling to get to the point of like why I want to stop being addicted to the substance. Um, and so it's just kind of like, you have to keep reminding yourself, like, all oh, right, I'm, I'm just doing this thing, even though it's become kind of normal now and kind of boring, and you always feel like, oh, yeah, I could just go back to one drink or whatever because I've done such a good job. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing, too, is, like, I was really resistant to accountability, to counting the days and marking the time because I knew that abstinent, 100% abstinence was just not possible, but it was 100% the goal. So how do you go into something knowing that you're going to fail at it? You know? Yeah. Um, there's like a lot of humility in that, especially if you're sharing your journey with other people. And so for a long time, I was really resistant to like marking down the days, like counting up the days, how many times it's been or how long it's been. 
And I, when I finally did that, it was really easy to recognize the patterns of when mm. I was breaking down, when I was like reaching vulnerable points. And it was like consistent, consistent. Every 30 days I was having like one drink. And wow. when you can see that, when you can see the data, it allows you to make like a plan. And so yeah. actually um, the last time we talked on your podcast, you sent me an agenda, like a calendar. And it was a five-year calendar. And I was like, I don't know if I've ever had a five-year calendar. <laughs> and that was actually the one that I started using to mark, like, actually mark, like, okay, one beer this day. Um, this day I got really fucked up, and then I had a hangover. Oh, I had one beer this day, and I didn't even get drunk. Like, that was so useful. And it was mm. something that I really did not want to do because it was just, like, marking the point till the next failure is what it felt like mm, yeah but now i see it it's like more neutral it's more like this is the info that you need to make the plan for you so be, yeah for people who are like considering it know that it's going to be harder than continuing drinking and yeah that you have to have a plan you have to have tools you have to have like a buddy <laughs> yeah <laughs> who understands <laughs> Yeah. And then also realize, though, that like it, it is and I'm glad that you kind of really broke down just how sucky it is to get sober because mm -hmm. it's good for people to face that. That said, you do you get rewarded with increased energy, better sleep. You remember your dreams more. You have better quality of dreams. And also it's like a weight releases off your shoulders because it's something if you're trying to get sober that means that you know that you have an issue and so that means every time that you break down and drink there's something it's a weight being added on your shoulders like i know i'm not supposed to do this but i do it anyways because i can't stop myself so you are rewarded with each day that you stack of sobriety even though some of those days are excruciatingly painful you at least have that knowledge of like okay i can I can like flick a couple more ounces of that fucking weight off my shoulders, you know? Mm. Um, and then another thing, and I'm not going to go too deep into my process because I'm going to go into more detail on one of my next podcasts, but I, I will say that um, exercise is like essential for me. It was absolutely essential to like replace a lot of the nervous energy that mm. usually was spent either waiting planning for my next drink acquiring the alcohol getting drunk and then recovering from it like i had to do something with all that fucking energy and so i needed to like like heavy lifting if you're into that or like cardio um high intensity interval training just like just do that shit. it's really helpful yeah for sure yeah um well i can't thank you enough martha do that we are we've talked for almost an hour and a half nice <laughs> yeah that's perfect <laughs> Um, I really, really appreciate it. I've gleaned a lot of just like wisdom and, and perspective just even from this one conversation. So thank you for joining and for sharing and and educating. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. So I'm sure we'll have you on again. Yeah, and we'll hang <laughs> so, out sometime between now and then for sure. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Um, all right. Thanks again. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Bye. All right.
right, y'all, you made it to the end of the episode. Congratulations, kudos, props for enduring, for persevering, for laughing, for crying, and uh, for making it through to the end. A big thank you again to Marta for coming on and helping me with this topic. I really, really appreciate uh, you and your insights, Marta, so thank you. And um, one last reminder that if you have not rated, reviewed, and subscribed to The Barbarian Noetics, wherever you listen to podcasts, if you would please do that, that would be awesome. Uh, my neighbor is slamming his screen door over and over again, so that's the, the beautiful background noise. And, um, and then if you would like to become uh, my, my master and my liege, you may do so at Patreon, www.patreon.com slash noetics. And you can become a patron of the show and have a special little spot, real estate in my heart, uh, and have your, your name be blessed daily by me. All right. So as a reward for making it to the end of the ep, this time I'm going to turn to a random page from a book uh, that I, another book I recently rediscovered that I love. This one is called Inner Work, Using Dreams and Active Imagination for Personal Growth. And it's by Robert A. Johnson, the Jungian psychoanalyst. So I'm going to turn to a random page, read a paragraph, and that's how we're going to cap off this ep. All right, I turn to page 70. Connecting images to specific characteristics. Probably the most immediate and practical way to connect a particular image to yourself is to ask what traits you have in common with the image. What are the main characteristics of the person in the dream? How would you describe his or her character and personality? Where do you find those same traits in yourself? If the image is of an angry person, where do you find an angry quality in you? If it is happy-go-lucky, where do you find that same quality in yourself? We all have a set of fundamental characteristics from from which everything else in our personalities derive. These basics include our feelings, belief systems, attitudes, and patterns of behavior and the values we adhere to. All these traits show up in our dreams and can be identified if we look for them. Every dream is a portrait of the dreamer. You may think of your dream as a mirror that reflects your inner character the aspects of your personality of which you are not fully aware. Once we understand this, we can also see that every trait portrayed in our dreams has to exist in us somewhere, regardless of whether we are aware of it or admit it. Whatever characteristics the dream figures have, whatever behavior they engage in, is also true of the dreamer in some way. By this, I don't mean that the trait or behavior shown in the dream is literally true of the dreamer exactly as it is portrayed in the dream. Dreams often speak in extremes. They try to compensate for our lack of awareness of equality by picturing it in an extreme, dramatic imagery. For example, if there is a thief in your dream, it doesn't literally mean that you are a thief. The dream uses this dramatic image to get your attention and tell you that you need to wake up to something inside you. It may be that you have been dishonest with yourself in some way. If so, you need to be aware of it and deal with it. But the image of the thief may also mean that you have repressed some finer quality in yourself, figuratively locked it out of your life. And the only way it can get back into your life is to quote, break in like a burglar. 
Because we often repress the best part of ourselves and think of them as negative qualities, some of the richest parts of the self, even the voice of God itself, can only partake in our lives by quote, stealing our time, stealing our energy through compulsions and neuroses, and slipping into our lives in the unprotected places where our guard is down. Of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. Paul to the Thessalonians. All right, y'all. And with that, uh, like a thief into the night, we're going to close out this pod. That metaphor made no sense, but, you know, it's the end of the episode, so I'm getting a little bit loopy. Um, Thanks again, guys. Uh, I'll be back next week with part three of the series, um, Crafting Sobriety from the Chaos of Alcoholism. And until then, be good to yourselves and be good to each other. And don't spend too much time looking at the news because it sucks. All right. Love y'all. Peace. Peace.